If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The Starter Edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We've been doing this so long, it's like falling off a bicycle. No, wait a minute. That's not... <laughs> yeah, except we're in their 50s now. When you fall off a bicycle, it takes a week to recover, right? <laughs> it's, oh, man. it's not good. Oh, the, the wife had a little fall in the garden and, you know, and spiked a rock the wrong way. Oh, and really? so uh, got got a great big, you know, purple bruise on her butt, which is not, it's not good in the sense that she's wounded. It is good as she keeps showing me her butt. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shortage of butt showing in the Campbell household. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's just one of those things. It's a, you know, it's not a bad day when you're working in your desk and your wife comes in and yanks down her pants. Like, that's a good thing. <laughs> just yeah. like that. I mean, just saying. Wonderfulness. Hey, man. Yeah. How are things for you? Well, um. Yeah, I got a, kind of got a few things to say uh, about me personally and what's going on in my life. Uh, we talked about this before that I was moving out of uh, the Duart building on State Street, Pwop Studios. Wow, yeah. Yeah, well, the piano came to my house. Oh, right. Of course. You've got that baby grand that's been in there forever. Yeah. Your, your brother usually plays. That's right. I got a beautiful baby grand piano. And, uh, you know, this is being recorded at the end of October and, and now we're mm -hmm. like 19th of November. So, it, this just the, sort of the first time I've been able to talk about it because the piano just got here a couple of days ago. So, I'm already enjoying it immensely and uh, Kelly and I are playing chopsticks together and, you know, it's kind Aww. of heart and soul and all those things. But... Uh, the other news is that I've been doing a bit of more live streaming. In fact, one of the things I'm doing tonight is night two of this phenomena that happens in New London every year called the New London Talent Show. Huh. And this is a community show, and it was first done uh, as a youth talent show. And you've never seen a more avid, packed full house, packed full of kids cheering on their friends and stuff. And that's what it was like literally sold out every single year. That's lovely. Yeah. And this is the first year we're doing it um, remotely. Right. So I'm doing VMix, and oh, of course you are. Yeah. Right. In pandemic time. So you've been helping out the, the, um, the organization to be able to do all that remote stuff. Yeah, that's right. And it's That's all, cool. it was all uh, this year a benefit for the Guard Arts Center, which has been on lockdown, and they haven't had anybody in there since March. So, uh, actually, right. that's PWAP is becoming a member of the Guard Arts Center family. So, my studio is actually moving into the Guard Arts Center in the Oasis. More or less room. across the street. Right, right across the street. Yeah. So, big Still changes. End of an era that, you know, you and I met when that was your training space. That's right. Yeah. Before and we then, renovated into a studio. Intended to do studio. So, yeah. yeah, big changes. Big changes. Awesome. Well, anyway, let's uh, roll the crazy music for Better Know a Framework. All right, man, what do you got? Well, this actually has to do with .NET. <laughs> oh, I've heard of that. It's amazing. What a concept. I don't yeah. know if you've seen the show title lately. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> Um, I do this uh, weekly YouTube series called Blazor Train, if you haven't heard mm -hmm. of it, blazortrain.com. And uh, I'm at episode 26. I'm going to be recording next week. But episodes 24 and 25 are interesting, and I think people might want to take note of this. So that's why I'm bringing it up. They're on MVVM in Blazor. Okay. Interesting. I mean, we got into MVVM with Silverlight back in the day. That's right. And, you know, Blazor has a really nice component model and a really amazing binding model. And uh, it's a lot more simple to do MVVM in Blazor than it is to do it in, say, WPF. Mm -hmm. um, so, in the first episode, episode 24, I show you how to take a regular old Blazor form 
and MVVMRIZE it. MVVMIZE? I think you're making that up. Yeah, well, kind of. <laughs> and so, you know, it just, it just occurs to you after a while that uh, a view model is nothing more than a code behind file that is uh, disconnected, you know, and accessible via interface rather than uh, an instance. And so, just by doing that, you separate the, the, the view from all the code that supports the view. And uh, in part two, which is episode 25, I show you some advanced MVVM patterns, like how to do uh, computed uh, values and bind to those. In other words, we're binding to a string property, but that string property doesn't update based on sub-properties. It has to be computed. And so, therefore, you have to have some notification happening between your business models and the view model. To, so, the view right. model knows when to recompute that. And that, since it's bound through, you know, Blazor, it just updates. So, anyway, it's good stuff. And uh, I wanted to just tell you that uh, interest in Blazor in general, I think, is really getting high. There's a yeah, lot of yeah. people saying, wow, this is amazing stuff. And, uh, you know, back back in the day, we didn't realize it would be so robust. But now people are taking a really serious look at it. Well, the tooling's improving, right? Like, all these things are getting better. So, oh, yeah. getting closer to something... Yep. Uh, that folks really that will solve a lot of problems. Cool stuff. Yep. All right, man. That's it for me. Well, who's talking to us today? Gravity Comment Off Show 1697. That is the one we did back in July of 2020 with one Sebastian Lambla. Mm-hmm. And if you recall, that was right ahead of the .NET Foundation elections. And there was a whole conversation about the open source ecosystem and, and maybe the role that the foundation could play in, right. in protecting that and in supporting it as well. And uh, Ryan Riley has this great comment. He says, this is a fantastic episode. Thank you for hosting this conversation with Sebastian. And Carl, you used Newtonsoft. Jason is an example of a better library than the newer system.text.json. However, right. I think this misses the history that Newtonsoft Jason was officially adopted by Microsoft for the last several versions of ASP.net. Yep. That, that a better com- comparison would be the UTF-8 JSON versus the system.txt.json. Fair enough. These solve the same thing, though the former has been around a lot longer. Yeah. Rather than helping evolve the former, so the, the UTF-8 JSON, to use spans, Microsoft wrote their own. And so Seb's assertions hold firm with regards to Microsoft replacing OSS solutions with their own ecosystem. Mm. And, it, you know... I. Ryan, I'm a little careful bringing this up. Bringing this up, th- I thought about this for a while, just from the point of view of we don't know why Microsoft ended up running their own, and maybe I got to go hunt that guy down and convince, say, like, talk to me about this. Yeah, because it's always the question of were the folks that were maintaining UTF-8 JSON interested in the change that folks were asking for? Like, what was the reason that they ultimately led them to that point? But it's certainly an overarching chunk of conversation going on these days as to why would. Uh, an existing library not be, you know, improved upon or modified to do the things that people want as opposed to making something completely new. I mean, that's an overarching conversation in open source in general. I just think that when mega corporations are involved, we have to be all the more careful. Agreed. So, uh, Ryan, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. And uh, they're bound two ways. Two ways. <laughs> it's a two-way binding. Two-way binding when you tweet us. And that, I know, it's terrible, but, <laughs> you know, I have about five seconds to come up with a joke here, but that's my fault. Well, and it's, they're legit dad jokes, too, because we're yeah. legit dads. Exactly. It doesn't take much, really. No. All right. So, let's <laughs> let's bring back to the show Aaron Stannard. Uh, he's the founder and CEO of Petabridge, a company that provides commercial support, training, and tooling for Akka.net, one of the OSS projects he founded. Petabridge creates products like Phobos, Akka.net APM, Petabridge.command or CMD, Akka.net CLI, and OSS tools such as Nbench, a .NET performance testing tool. Welcome back, Aaron. Thanks. Uh, glad, glad to be here again. 
Yeah, I'm I'm going to let Richard lead off, but uh, there has <laughs> been a lot of discussion about OSS and Microsoft and as the 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 comment clearly expressed and you've written some good stuff about it and we uh, wanted to you know have you on to to talk about it. Open source drama with .net? Yeah. Oh my god. That never Who happens. could have imagined? That never <laughs> I mean going going all the, of course I'm immersed in this with the we're still working on the flipping book, right? And uh, and there's a whole conversation about alt.net in, back in the in the middle aughts when there was this wave of, hey, open source is a legit player, too, even before Microsoft had bought in on that. Uh, you know, you, you thought we won this. We, we Who did we have on? I think it was Jeremy Miller. Jeremy Miller. Yeah. Was like, hey, remember your sort of mission with alt.net was to use, get open source more involved? Don't you think you guys won? Like... Look where Microsoft is now. And, yeah. and even then, Jeremy sort of hinted, it's like, doesn't mean all is well. Right. That, that okay, well, you know, that's that's been resolved. We all love open source now. Now this question of how do we all work together in this community in an effective way. The fact that Microsoft bought Xamarin and brought Miguel into Microsoft to, you know, forward the open source nature of .NET is just something I never thought I would ever see back in the day yeah i um i think it was kind of a loss for the dotnet ecosystem when uh, xamarin joined microsoft uh we kind of went from having let's say uh, a second powerful voice with some uh, serious skin in the game in the mm -hmm. form of, of xamarin not to mention one of the most sort of uh opinionated open source advocates in the ecosystem mm -hmm. in the form of miguel uh you know basically i hate the i hate to use this word because i'm such a, a free marketeer myself but they sold out um, yeah, that, that actually stings, uh, saying that a little bit, but, um, they, they, you know, they sold to Microsoft and that's totally their prerogative to do it. But I feel like, um, I don't know if they had any choice, right? In the end, they taken on a lot of investment and those investors expected a return. Absolutely. And the only logical outcome for Xamarin was an acquisition by someone. And it, could it be, what if they had sold to Oracle? Oh, God. I think that might have made things a little bit more interesting. Actually. Interesting for you. Well, <laughs> you know, because we were talking about this on the show when it, before they got acquired by Microsoft, when they started making the moves on Java. Remember, they acquired that company that did a Java to Objective-C translator. Like, mm. and, I, and I'm looking at this going, wow, I think they're building out a stack so that you could do all your mobile development in Java instead of all your mobile development in C Sharp. Yep. Mm. It's uh, they. I think I remember seeing a post they did where they're able to use some of their JVM bindings to uh, rewrite the Dalvik VM uh, for job for Android uh, using I think C Sharp under the covers. They did a, they they uh, took a uh, language translation tool, a transpiler called Sharpen. I think was the name of it, which helps convert uh, Java to C Sharp, and I think it works backwards from JVM bytecode, if I recall mm -hmm. correctly. Mm. And they were able to rebuild the entire Dalvik JVM uh, in C Sharp just using that tool. Um, and this was that's, this came up, I think, during the height of the Oracle versus Google uh, copyright cases over the Dalvik VM. Um, so there, there were some interesting possibilities there for sure. And but uh, you know, the other the other bit is uh, Xamarin certainly brought a lot of value uh, to Microsoft and to .NET developers since yeah. joining Microsoft. So there's absolutely been some wins for the community. Um, it's just more of a, um, one of the things that I'm kind of focused on in my, uh, work and in my advocacy in the open source space is this kind of concept of supplier diversity in an ecosystem. Sure. Mm. Now I buy that. But, and before we move away from that, how do you feel about the GitHub acquisition then? Well, with the GitHub acquisition, so if I reposition this, you know, full disclosure, I'm, a, I'm an ex Microsoft developer evangelist who worked on their startup division. And, you know, trying right. to get GitHub to pay any attention to us back in 2010, 11, and 12 when I was working there uh, what was, would have been, you know, no, nothing short of a, of a miracle. Mm -hmm. um, so I think acquiring GitHub was a, a kind of a natural move for Microsoft. I think that GitHub certainly didn't have any problems with access to capital. I mean, they had raised, was it something somewhere in the neighborhood of half a billion dollars in yeah. private equity? Uh, mm -hmm. Prior to um, prior to actually being acquired by Microsoft, maybe a year or two later, so they they, they certainly weren't undercapitalized. But just like uh, just like Xamarin, you know, they they needed an exit of some kind. Mm -hmm. 
So, well, and they weren't a profitable business, right? Like it's tough to make money on source control. I, I thought they were originally bootstrapped and they made a fair amount of money selling GitHub Enterprise, but also an astonishingly high amount of money selling swag like T-shirts. and things Oh, it's like crazy. That. Uh-huh. But, an, but not enough to get the valuation that those kinds of investors, those Silicon Valley investors wanted. No, certainly not. You need that synergy between, let's say, a gigantic cloud business and yeah. uh, the world's largest you know, provider of source code. Uh, in, in the form of GitHub in order to really kind of drive that type of market valuation. So they're either going to get bought by another cloud player like Amazon or, or it's going to be Microsoft. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I also felt like Microsoft did this legit. Like Microsoft became one of the largest consumers of GitHub before they were an acquisition, right? That they pushed their work over there. Absolutely, they did. If, if Oracle came along or even Amazon, like a- Amazon has... For all of Microsoft's faults in the open source ecosystem, they at least have skin in the game. Right. They've open sourced important proprietary parts of their platform. They're, they've been one of the biggest contributors to the Linux kernel for years now. And they, they've, they've shown up and actually gotten some work done. I think we can thank Scott Guthrie and his crew for, for that really happening inside Microsoft, can't we? Or do you think that if it wasn't Guthrie, it would have been somebody else? I think so. I, from inside baseball here, when I was working as a cloud evangelist for Azure back in 2011, so this early 2011, that was when Guthrie took over for Bob Muglia. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so yeah, Muglia, I was Satya that got Muglia's job, but that Guthrie worked for Satya. That's right. Satya took, yeah. took Muglia's job after right. Muglia accidentally killed Silverlight on stage <laughs> at uh, PDC the year before. Um, but, uh, Satya took over uh, that. You're right. Uh, Satya took over Muglia's job. And then uh, Guthrie was essentially brought in to oversee the tech, the technology side of Azure. And Azure was nothing short of a total train wreck in 2011. I would know I was trying to get people to use it. Um, and <laughs> I, I recall one of the stories about the early days of Azure of uh, Guthrie's tenure at Azure was he took a bunch of engineers from some of his other teams that he was interested in bringing over to Azure offsite and gave them some prompts. Uh, like, so they were all at like a hotel in Bellevue somewhere over yeah. a weekend. He told this like, story on the show years ago. Yeah. Oh, he did. Okay. So now yeah. I won't rehash it then. But yeah, no, yeah. but that's just that whole idea of you, you have a credit card, two of you to a room. You're not allowed to use any of your existing Microsoft accounts. Now go build a website right. on Azure. Yep. And they, and they all failed because it was impossible absolutely it was it was miserable uh working with azure back then um and so i think you know scott kind of drove this sort of uh, idea and competency that in order for azure to be competitive you had to go back to your roots which is we need to start with infrastructure as a service not Mm -hmm. platform as a service and our infrastructure needs to be both windows or or linux or we will get killed and I think as a result of kind of driving that Linux adoption, that opened the door for Microsoft to start seriously exploring, let's say, non.NET platforms as like viable customers for coming on to Azure. Sure. And so I think there was definitely sort of a synergistic effect between uh, Azure's changes from both the technical and business model point of view, uh, but also that I think kind of bled into the way the .NET sort of ecosystem was all the direction it was going to take. It had to be cross-platform too. couldn't be Windows only anymore. And now we're, you know, four or five years later, we're in a totally different world uh, than we were back in, you know, 2011, 2012. Um, and I think that that ultimately is what drove a lot of Microsoft employees uh, onto GitHub, not just taking their own work and open sourcing it, which they've done ad nauseum. I think Microsoft has like six or 7,000 repositories spread right. out across... Yeah two or three different large organizations. But on top of that, they've shown up and contributed to some of my projects. So I've probably accepted contributions from Microsoft employees on at least half a dozen repos that I control. Uh, They've shown up and contributed to projects that are, you know, run the gamut from JavaScript to home automation stuff for nerds and you name it. So culturally, they've kind of shown up in force and really embraced open source, at least from a... um, a, particip- a participation standpoint, whereas Amazon, on the other hand, who is, I think, the other natural acquirer for GitHub, is just tumbleweeds. The only time they show up 
to really kind of uh, wrap their arms around open source is to either update their own handful of .NET drivers they have mm. or to figure out how they can work around Redis's license agreements so they can sell it as a cloud service. <laughs> you know? I, I, Google admits that they were in the running to buy GitHub and that they lost it to Microsoft. I don't know that Amazon ever took it all that seriously. I could have seen Google get it. I just was afraid Google would kill it at some point. Yeah, there's there's a whole website dedicated to the uh, vast graveyard of products uh, that fall under Google's uh, now terminated portfolio. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, killedbygoogle.com, I think. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the acquisition for GitHub, I think, is probably ultimately a win uh, for developers at large. Uh, it, it's still the healthiest ecosystem on planet Earth for doing open source development out in public. And the fact that it's got, let's say, Azure kind of backing it now means that features like GitHub Actions, for instance, let's all be clear, GitHub Actions is Azure pipelines with fenders is what it is. Um, (laughs) Yeah, well, it it, it seemed to me the Azure DevOps stack as a whole made more sense, big pieces of it being part of GitHub rather than part of Azure. Like, that just seems more rational. Absolutely. And I I think basically GitHub actions will probably replace pipelines at some point. Although there's some some things uh, that probably won't ever make it into GitHub actions stuff that, you know, people who are not working on open source projects care about probably won't make it in there. Yeah. Um, But... GitHub is a natural platform for doing all this stuff, and it's much more viral than Azure, you know, Azure repositories or whatever their equivalent is called. You know, so it's a it's good from that point of view. Uh, it's a good way to kind of offer some sell through on for Azure into mm-hmm. a whole bunch of developers who are not normal Microsoft consumers, like and you know, Node.js developers, Go programmers, that sort of thing. And all the work that Microsoft's kind of done on top of GitHub, like I think another good example is Dev Spaces or excuse me, Code Spaces. Um, yeah, it was one of the other kind of new features that's in beta right now for being able to take you know basically create little workspaces that are all hosted. I think inside uh, an, an Azure Kubernetes service uh, Dev Space, I think is what the real backing tool is behind Code Spaces. I'm I'm probably mm-hmm. wrong on that, but whatever, doesn't matter. We, I mean, we've talked to folks about it, but they don't get too deep into the plumbing. Just like, look, here's what you can do. Well, it's just that uh, having worked with AKS a lot, Dev Spaces is a very similar feature uh, for doing right. that type of stuff. So I figure there's probably some analog between the two. Um, but I think, I think long, long story short, that's that Microsoft's definitely upped its game and is probably of all the big is sort of Fang companies, Fang plus M, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. is probably the most active on, uh, let's see, uh, in terms of just the breadth of their portfolio uh, on GitHub at the moment. You know, Google certainly has a very long and storied track record of putting great works out into the public. Um, so don't, don't, definitely don't want to detract from anything they've done. But Microsoft's just everywhere, doing everything out in the open right now. Well, there's all the good news. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the doing everything out in the open is very mm. much the double-edged sword, which uh, sure. is, a, I think, kind of the, the reason d'entre for our, uh, our conversation today, which is that Microsoft is a very active and uh, you know, powerful sort of producer in the open source ecosystem, particularly for .NET. But there are some... There are some problems with the way they have gone about it. Uh, now, if I had to go ahead and try to phrase this into bullet points here, I would argue that the first problem that Microsoft has is they still have not been good consumers of open source. Interesting. Even though they produce a ton of it. A mm-hmm. lot of the things that every other company does on earth, I mean, in, in terms of who are like my customers who use Akka.net in our open source, we've got very conservative companies, you know, starting with, let's say, groups like Bank of America, United Airlines, and others who use Akka.net in their systems, all the way down to, you know, startups that are doing stuff like renewable energy or programmable manufacturing lines and that type of stuff mm-hmm. that are using it. So it kind of, ru- it runs the gamut. We're on the, the, fir- the low, on the, let's say, the big company end, these big Fortune 100 companies, very risk averse, very conservative. They need to have a high degree of confidence that everything they're putting into their technology stack is going to be supported and is going to endure in the long term. Those companies have still supported technologies like Aka.net and have still bought training, bought, uh, bought support plans, that type of thing, and have adopted it. 
And then on the far right-hand side, you have those startups, which are the least risk-averse. They have nothing to lose. They're yeah. trying to get something out to market fast. Uh, they don't necessarily care what's going to happen to that open source in a couple of years because they're not sure they're even going to be around as a business. Mm. They're just trying yeah. to get a proof of concept out the door. Microsoft is nowhere on the spectrum right now. Hmm. They are very, very reluctant to consume open source. They basically won't do it. That isn't their own, essentially. That isn't their own, exactly. Yeah. Um, open. I guess I'll rephrase it this way. They will not consume open source that is controlled by third-party publishers that are not other giant fang companies. Right. Basically. Mm, Chromium, for example. Chromium, they'll adopt. Uh, Kubernetes. Docker, yeah. they'll adopt. Does it have anything to do with the license model? Like there's uh, some open source licenses that require that if you modify anything, then you have to share it back. I don't think so. Uh, most of the – so when we were at Microsoft, we were trained in terms of our open source uh, hygiene policies that interacting with anything that's under a friendly commercial license, such as like MIT or Apache mm -hmm. 2, that's probably yeah. okay to go ahead and take a look at the source code and use it. Where Microsoft really didn't want you as an employee poking around was anything that was licensed under GPL3, mm, the really right. draconian licenses. That would also include stuff like AGPL and that sort of thing. And there are ways to work with those, as we've been repeatedly chided, but it meant as an employee, you had to tread carefully. Yes. You, had to, you really had to involve legal, mm. which is another way of saying don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Well, and, there, and there's some GPL v3 products that you can still sure. use at Microsoft. Absolutely. Good example would be some standalone database engines, right? Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure what Redis is licensed as now, but I thought they were GPL v3 for a long time. Um, I think they have a, a different license these days, but you know, Azure's got an entire service that uses Redis for caching that they sell to customers. They're um, under a modified BSD now. Modified BSD. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't think the licensing has so much to do with it. I, I outlined this in one of my blog posts, but it has more to do with Microsoft's product management culture, where they have they are control freaks, for lack of a better word. Uh, so it is the culture, yeah. They they have to control any experience they're going to deliver to a customer. They have to control end to end the entire delivery of it. So, good example. I got into a squabble with. Uh, is it, uh, I think, David Fowl and, or David Fowler, excuse me, and uh, a couple of other people over the open telemetry specification. Uh, this is kind of an industry standard for how to do things like tracing and metrics inside uh, web applications, any sort of server-side hosted cloud app uh, would probably mm -hmm. use open telemetry uh, for being able to record performance metrics, trace the lifespan of requests, that type of thing. Uh, this is a, a working specification that was put together by uh, Google, Microsoft, but then a whole bunch of APM vendors like New Relic and Dynatrace and Datadog, these, these sorts of companies. Yeah. Microsoft's implementation was the only one that was going to deviate in terms of its terminology and also the API surface area pretty significantly by moving all of the functionality away from the open telemetry uh, terms, such as like spans and traces. And they're moving all of it under system.diagnostics.activity, which is a base class library. And you know, David Fowler argued the reason why we need to do this is because if we're going to include telemetry from, let's say, the, the bottom of the .NET Core stack, we have to control what the API footprint looks like because of all the different, let's say, layers of stuff that gets built on top of it mm -hmm. and all of the backwards compatibility guarantees we need to make. Right. So Microsoft kind of prefers these abstractions in their ecosystem where they have, where Microsoft basically controls sort of the base le level abstractions for, for everything. And that they're fine to let the open source ecosystem come up with innovations on their own. But when they get a sufficient amount of customer demand for these types of features and these, or maybe some specific behavior that a third party library does, Microsoft's approach for these types of things has historically been to import those innovations that were developed externally into Microsoft first party libraries eventually. And as a result of this, you know, one of the sort of effects that, uh, that this, this ultimately ends up producing is it drums out a lot of the innovative people who can invent, invent these things 
in the first place out of the .NET ecosystem. Mm. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, one of the reasons why I harp on this isn't just that it's my own self-interest. You know, I compete, you know, Aka.net, our framework competes with at least four different Microsoft distributed actor frameworks. Right. And well, too, right? Like, Aka is well-respected. Yes. Yes, it is. And guys, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. You know, since the pandemic, most of us are cooking and eating at home. We don't frequent restaurants like we used to, but we do have to shop for food, which can put us at risk. One solution is to subscribe to a meal kit delivery service like EveryPlate. You might think it's more expensive to have fresh ingredients shipped to your door, but EveryPlate dinners are cheaper than takeout and way cheaper than delivery. In fact, one EveryPlate meal costs about the same as a latte. We're talking fresh ingredients, meats, vegetables, herbs, spices, everything you need to cook a delicious meal with no wasted food in about 30 minutes. That's less time than it takes to shop and cook, to call for takeout, or have a pizza delivered. That's why I subscribe to EveryPlate. And now you can get three weeks of EveryPlate meals delivered to your door for just $2.99 a meal. That's three weeks of meals for $2.99 per meal. Go to everyplate.com and enter the code .NET3. That's everyplate.com and enter the code D-O-T-N-E-T-3. You know, there are tons of VPN providers out there. You've probably heard of a couple of them. And some of you may have even used a VPN before, but I like to do research on my sponsors. And I can only recommend brands to my listeners that I believe in. And I can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. Here's why. ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. Lots of really cheap free VPNs make money by selling your data to ad companies. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. Second is speed. I've tried lots of VPNs in the past. Many slow your connection down or make your device sluggish. I've been using ExpressVPN for two years now, and my internet speeds are blazing fast. Even when I connect to servers thousands of miles away, I can still stream HD quality videos with zero lag. The last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from others is how easy it is to use. Unlike other VPNs, you don't have to input or program anything. You just fire up the app and click one button to connect. It's so easy, even Mama Franklin can use it. And it's not just me saying this. Wired, The Verge, CNET, and many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with a VPN that I use and trust. Use my link, expressvpn.com slash dot net. That's expressvpn.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash dot net. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Talking to our friend Aaron Standard a bit about the open source community and the way Microsoft's been functioning within it. And uh, we were just digging into this whole conversation around ACA because, of course, folks are very impressed with ACA. It's been wildly successful. You mentioned mm-hmm. the fact that it comes from a larger community and the fact that you're just sort of sticking to the way that the regular ACA, I don't even say it that way, but ACA for the JVM versus ACA for the CLR works. Right. So part of part of Aka.net's formula for success has been a combination of factors. But the first one I'd lead off with is the fact that Aka, you know, the original Scala project built by Lightbend mm-hmm. has been immensely successful. I mean, it powers, you know, a lot of other open source projects that are built on top of it, including some big Apache ones. Uh, it's used in companies like Walmart and Twitter for all sorts of really high throughput types of activities that occur there. And these designs are, are very heavily battle tested and are part of a, a much bigger community of people working on large scale programming. So our part of our mission in terms of why we do what we do in the Aka.net project is to make those successful designs available to .NET developers. And so you know, one of the arguments that uh, we occasionally hear is, oh, well, you guys aren't really doing anything all that innovative or hard. You're just porting mm-hmm. someone else's hard work. And boy, uh, my job would be a lot easier if that were true. 
Um, <laughs> we spend we spend an inordinate amount of time on the Aka.net project. In uh, uh, this is part of the reason why we're adopted so heavily is we spend a massive amount of time doing quality assurance. Uh, I right. just helped a customer debug a 100 node Aka.net cluster that had four or five, maybe three or four or five different versions of Aka.net that were all spread out across several years of releases, all running concurrently together inside the same cluster. And these nodes had uptimes in the neighborhood of like six months without restarting. Right. So accomplishing that is no small feat when you're making changes to the networking engine, when you're making changes to the way serialization works and so forth. And the reason why we're able to produce those types of results is because we're very careful about managing it. And that requires a lot of organization and quality control and standards on our part. The other thing it also really requires is very actively engaging our open source community and being aware of sort of what's causing problems, what's urgent, and having a good, effective means of triaging all of that. And then the, finally, there's the sustainability piece. You know, we've been running the Aka.net project now for, I guess, started right around late November 2013 was when I started my first work on one of the original uh, pieces of code for it. Um, so I guess seven years in that, that ballpark. That's quite a long time to work on an open source project that yeah, has yeah. as many users as, and contributors as ours does. The key to making that work from a sustainability standpoint has been that our business goals are very closely aligned to the interest of our end users in the project. So the better the project does, the more people who adopt it, the more success they have in production, the greater percentage of people who are going to come to Petabridge and buy a support plan or buy a FOBO subscription for being able to monitor their cluster and you know, ultimately, that allows me to put, you know pay rent for myself and the people who work here. Mm. So it's been a yeah. um, a fairly significant effort to do that over many years, and we do that despite some pretty stiff competition from Microsoft, mm-hmm. and are successful ultimately because a we're differentiated from them. Um, all of Microsoft's cloud offer, uh, see, actor system offerings. There's four of them off the top of my head: Service Fabric Actors, Orleans. Uh, mm-hmm. There's that Coyote framework that just came out from MSR, I think, not that long ago. And then there's Dapper, of course, which is their sort of cross-platform right. actor stuff that's all Kubernetes-focused. Uh, we're differentiated from them in a couple key ways. Uh, one is that we are very focused on performance as sort of a first-class feature, whereas I think Microsoft's technologies tend to be more focused on abstracting away the network and some of the other underlying problems that can cause so they're kind of more focused on providing a high degree of reliability out of the box, whereas we're more focused on providing a high degree of performance. And I would say the second thing we do differently is we scale down. Aka.net can run on a Xamarin application inside a Unity 3D game, mm. or it can even run on an embedded device. I've seen it in all those different environments. Nice. Um, that's something that you can't really do with Microsoft solutions, which are more squarely aimed at targeting the cloud. Right. Um, for yeah. obvious reasons. Yeah. I mean, that is where their business lies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's not, you know, definitely there's nothing wrong with that approach. It's just a difference. Mm-hmm, without a doubt. And it, and, and it really, fo- you know, it's interesting. In some ways, you're more focused on what the customer problem may be rather than the platform problem that Microsoft's ultimately motivated by. Yes, that's, that's, that's just kind of a, a difference in our business models. Because I think yeah. uh, Petabridge it was an accidental company. You know, we weren't in the business <laughs> of trying to manufacture developer tools. Uh, Aka.net was something that I you know, helped uh, co-found when I was working. You know, I was running a marketing automation company for helping people monetize Windows Store applications <laughs> oh, wow. at the time. Um, so that business crashed and burned. Uh, that should be a, that, that'll be a story for a future episode. <laughs> Another show, yeah, <laughs> yep. definitely. Um, What's but, more to uh, say? But yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think anyone made a lot of money off of the Windows Store, including Microsoft. Uh, um, it was one of Microsoft's early attempts to figure out how they were going to do something in the internet, right? Like they, they. I don't think the intention was any bad. It was just groping around, not really knowing how to serve people yeah. well there. It's a story of when you have the wrong success metric leading yeah. the uh, leading the strategy, and their metric at the time was maximize the number of apps in the store. And, right. Well, we accomplished that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At what price? Yep. I I also wonder. You know, you you've touched on a really interesting thing here, which, which I in my mind, which is this sort of innovation for innovation's sake, versus 
reliability and, and performance being the primary metrics. Like a, an awful lot of Microsoft to me seems very focused on build new and shiny rather than reliable, performant, cost effective. It's like new and shiny seems to always win the day. I would, um, having been you know inside Microsoft, I would not disagree. There's a fair amount of shiny object syndrome mm-hmm. uh, inside there. And that kind of permeates their culture. Let's do this cool thing because we can. Um, but also they get rewarded for it, right? Like that's when you look at the big promotion, when you get look at the the, the successful people, it, it tends more often to be the new and shiny that gets promoted rather than the reliable, consistent, stable mindset. Well, it reminds me of the sort of the age old paradox of who gets on the front page of Hacker News. And right. it's usually the people who massively screwed up. And found a way to dig out of that screw yeah. up who get on their hero not, work, not right? the person, than- not the person who came up with a sensible, uh, traditional design that just quietly performs at the scale it was expected to be able to perform at uh, without causing anyone to lose any sleep, you know? Yeah. No drama. Yep. No uh, drama does not get rewarded. <laughs> it's a, b- a bit of a human attention paradox, I suppose. Um, sure. Well, by that same token, you know, Microsoft does, I, I think, has a tendency to want to go ahead and push the frontiers of programming. That's that's the whole, you know, reason for Microsoft research in the first place, which employs, mm-hmm. gosh, what, somewhere between four and 10,000 people. I can't remember exactly. Um, but so that's their, that's their prerogative. And they've done a lot to advance the state of the art. It's just when that culture kind of makes its way into the mainstream developer tools that everyone's supposed to use. Where I think we can start to run into trouble, <laughs> yeah. um, where things that get kind of pushed to the forefront of what we should or could be doing. Oh, well, it's when we start kind of uh, conflating what we could do with what we should. Um, good, I think a good example of an instance of that that we've had to kind of work backwards on a bit as a as a community in .NET is how dependency injection when you know, ASP .NBC kind of first really uh, hit hit yeah. the scene. We, we reached this kind of point where the new keyword was now considered to be an anti-pattern. We needed to have some, <laughs> so, some service locator barf up, you know, let's say a giant acyclic graph <laughs> worth of dependency j- uh, chains in order for us to get a string value inside a <laughs> class somewhere. Um, we've kind of unwound that a little bit. People eventually came to their senses and said, okay, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Just, just new up the string, you know, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. But, um, I think occasionally some of that does make its way through. By and large, I'm, I'm more inclined to say that while Microsoft does like to chase out, chase after shoot uh, new and shiny, they also do a pretty good job of once they put something out in the public sphere, they I'd say for about uh, I, I want to say at least half the projects they put out in the public sphere, they do a good job making really long term bets and commitments around it. Um, the problem is though is that their track record also has just as many it has just as many sort of dead bodies behind it of projects <laughs> that were going to be the next big thing that ended yeah. up getting you know canned by the by, by the time build rolled around the following year yeah although I, and I don't know that there's that many of those things that they've hyped and got really excited about and then abruptly can but the few that have happened are very painful yes um, you'll find you'll find a fair amount of uh, of I'll put it this way. Anyone who writes XAML for a living is just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I think every single build um, in terms of whether or not, you know, it was UWP, now it's MAUI. Uh, and you don't necessarily know whether or not either of those technologies are going to be there uh, the right. next next year, next go around. Uh, that's that's one that I, I kind of tend to keep an eye on at the back of my head. I'll- They're trying to resolve the client development problem. There's no two ways about it, right? And yep. it's... It's not an easy thing to solve, right? Web's been winning for a long time for a reason. You know, in one hand, it's like, you know, I did an interview a while ago with Scott Hunter, I think for a Channel 9 thing, where he's talking point blank about, look, we built a version of WinForms that would work with Core. It just wasn't pixel perfect with the old WinForms. And the customers we had in WinForms are like, it better be freaking pixel perfect. That might, yeah, as, as much as we want to... Um as much as we want to dig dig at Microsoft for some of the things they don't they don't do well, they are certainly asked a lot by the user yeah. base too. Yep. So yeah, backward compatibility has been a number one priority for them. 
it's also made them a tremendous amount of money, right? That's true. Like to be backwardly compatible, like they, they, it's it's the thing you wear with pride being in Microsoft develop in the Microsoft development e- ecosystem. It's like I'm not going to get screwed, and the few times we have looking at you, Silverlight. Yeah. We're really angry about it. Well, like it hasn't, you know, people still angry about arguably that. there wasn't any way Microsoft could not screw up, you know, take Silverlight off the off the table. They they kind of had their their hand was kind of forced. Yeah, they could have done a better job. Could have. Yeah. You know, they, to me, they, they be the, there's never been a bridge from Silverlight to this day, you know. Well, I think that was them getting caught in a bigger industry trend because, I mean, if you think Silverlight developers are pissed. Imagine how bad the Adobe ecosystem had it, mm-hmm. right? Oh, my goodness. Flash. Yeah, that would have been that times 10. For the same um, reason. Really? Yep. Same reason. Yeah. For the same letter. <laughs> <laughs> Darn Steve Jobs. Well, you well, know, it goes, goes to show you, I guess, uh, even even a company like Microsoft is not uh, – It's even with all of its size and all of its money is still vulnerable to the tides yeah. of market change. Yep. And so and, – and they, you know, they often wear the veil or the cloak of we're just serving our customers here. Like I also – there's a number of times where I feel like we're not necessarily Microsoft's principal customers. We're often advocates and we certainly have made money from this ecosystem, but I admit – like serving an MVP slash RD or any of these influencers, we're a small pool of people compared to the larger community. And if they've got their pulse, their fingers on the pulse of that larger community and it's not orthogonal to us, then it makes sense for them to do stuff that's going to annoy us. And that, that brings me back to this dichotomy between the open source ecosystem and .NET and Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was talking about the conversation we were having about the uh, using the open telemetry API as an example. Right. Microsoft use it as their job is to serve that larger constituency of people who do not give talks at .NET Conf, uh, totally. pe- people who have never been to an NDC. Mm-hmm. But these are the people who ultimately are using Microsoft's platform to build software that generates trillions of dollars a year in GDP. Yeah. Uh, and it really is that size, by the way. Yeah. Um, I think the famous quote, but this was 10 years ago, so I'm sure the number is bigger now, was for every dollar Microsoft makes, its partners make seven. You know? yeah. And that's just its partners. It doesn't include its customers, which is an even yeah. bigger number than that. So in the grand scheme of things, Microsoft feels like they've got this big constituency of users they have to support. And that's kind of where the problem really starts with the .NET ecosystem, um, which is Oh, hey, I'm using this feature in Autofac, an uh, you know, DI container that I really like, and it's fantastic. But Microsoft dot, you know, extensions dot dependency injection doesn't support this. You know what I should do? I should demand that Microsoft introduce this, this feature that's a big differentiator between these two frameworks. And as part of that cycle, all of the, let's say, work that the people who work on Autofac do all of a sudden just gets kind of consumed in a royalty-free way by Microsoft and all of the credit that went, went all the original, let's say, uh, credit that those developers are due for their hard work, their innovative designs and everything else, all just kind of goes up in smoke, except for maybe a handful of super users who were keenly aware of it. And you go ahead and you repeat little decisions like that, let's say hundreds of times a year, and eventually you have an ecosystem that's kind of back to where .NET was in, let's say, 2012, where we had effectively painted ourselves into a corner. We couldn't take advantage of any of the new DevOps trends that were coming out. We couldn't even right. build a web application that used WebSockets without waiting for a patch to Windows Server. Mm-hmm. In order to do right. this. Meanwhile, it was a total party going on with all the people in the Node.js ecosystem, which was you know brand new at the time. Or even in the Ruby ecosystem, we could be out basically we were being out innovated by everybody uh, in terms of changes to platforms, experimentation with new ideas, new ways of doing things. And it was kind of a dark period to be a .NET developer. Uh, now we've we're back in the saddle. .NET as a platform has never been healthier than it is right yeah. now, I would argue. Uh, but if we don't keep in mind the sort of supplier diversity of our ecosystem and you know, basically make it so anyone who's got a good idea in the .NET ecosystem can 
make something great with that good idea. Uh, there was a quote that got thrown around during one of these .NET Foundation dust-ups uh, that said, you can do one of two things in the .NET ecosystem, but not both. <laughs> the first the first thing is uh, in an event, something that's um, <laughs> well, I'm trying to remember exa- exactly how the quote went. I think the quote was, you can invent something uh, that's really pop, that's um, that's really popular and really successful. Uh, and, or two was you can invent, invent something that can allow you to build a business. Uh, right. And it's like only, you can only do one of those two things in the .NET ecosystem because Microsoft's going to come along and scalp that innovation otherwise. Um, and I think that is still lar- largely true to, d- to this day that um, Microsoft is pretty keen to go ahead and when there's popular innovations that pop up in the platform, Microsoft's impulse today is they want to maintain the, that sort of product management control over the experience that their big users have. And they're going to try to find a way to offer that first party so they don't have to take that risky third party dependency. And as a result, you have this sort of cycle of cannibalization that happens over and over again in the ecosystem. And this kind of brings into the into focus, what exactly is the role of the .NET Foundation in any of this, which is by and large funded by Microsoft and is kind mm-hmm. of meant to be the steward of, let's say, the open source bits that Microsoft right. produces, such as the CLR itself, uh, but is also kind of meant to be the steward and sort of the... Uh, Ground zero for kind of building a healthy, robust open source ecosystem. So, well, and, and supporting those third party projects. I mean, this is what Layla was talking about just a few weeks ago on the show that we, you have this community that I think is some of which have been relent, been reluctantly dragged towards open source just because Microsoft went there. And so they tend to want to buy only the Microsoft or use only the Microsoft open source stuff. But if it's anointed by the .NET Foundation as a third-party thing, it should be fine, right? That, that now it's protected. Well, it goes to show that the stock that the average .NET user puts in a project because it's in the .NET Foundation is not mm-hmm. all that high. Uh, no, I tend to agree. So, you know, Aka.NET, .NET Foundation project, just like Orleans is. Um, mm-hmm. And we've been in the foundation, I think, I don't know, since late 2017, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and what does the .NET Foundation give us? Well, it solved a handful of copyright issues we had at the time. We had a bunch of contributors. We had a logo that was contributed by someone who never signed a CLA or anything like that. Um, And so joining the foundation kind of helped clarify all that sort of legal stuff you don't think about when you start slinging code up on the internet initially, right? Right. Um, So it helped with that. But otherwise, we kind of haven't really gotten any value out of being in the .NET Foundation since. Mm-hmm. And that story is something that I have also heard from, I'd say, at least half a dozen other .NET Foundation project leads that once you get onboarded, they, they kind of don't really, don't really do a whole bunch. And right. I think part of that is, to some extent, uh, an issue with the .NET Foundation's sort of organization itself. But I also think it's a matter of what the foundation is expected to do versus like what, what their internal expectations are versus what the external ones are. Um, the .NET Foundation is not a very powerful voice for advocating opinions about what the ecosystem should ultimately look like right now. Right. I would argue that's not a function of who's on the .NET Foundation board, but rather what the you know one to 2,000 members of the .NET Foundation uh, are not doing, which is they're not actively trying to work with it to go ahead and put together, let's say, a set of standards around what does a well-run, low-risk open source project look like? Uh, this is something that Microsoft tried to take on its own uh, last year with the .NET Foundation Maturity Ladder proposal, which was all about how to get open source that is safe enough for Microsoft to include as a dependency in their own projects. Hmm. So, Problem with the dot. So, by the way, just full disclosure, I think I kind of led one of the pitchfork online pitchfork mobs against the uh, the .NET Foundation maturity ladder. So, my opinion here is a little colored. Um, but that being said, the big problem with it was was that ultimately it was subjective. You'd have to take your project and basically put it in front of a council of elders, and they would go ahead and deem based on uh, a bunch of a bunch of criteria which 
tier your project belonged to on the ladder. And there are a lot of, and some of those factors that they're going to judge you on might be well outside of your control. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately would create, let's say, a stratified system on NuGet where you could say this package is more trustworthy than this one. And there would be immense pressure in cases where, let's say, Alka.net and Orleans are going head to head. Well, if let's say the Council of Elders for this maturity ladder had a lot of people who are very closely affiliated with Microsoft, there would be an inherent conflict of interest in how they might rate Orleans versus Aka.net, right? Yeah, of course there'd be pressure there. The real, but you're still implying that the foundation, the folks that are making that decision, are tightly tied to Microsoft. Well, that was part of the. That was also part of the issue. Was mm-hmm. you know the .NET Foundation um, chairman. And the dot and and the people who proposed it, this kind of looked like something that was cooked up uh, and presented as a you know fait accompli, without really selling it to the project team leads or anyone else in the community yet. You know, mm-hmm. I, the, the first I'd heard about it was when they said, "This is a thing we're going to do," rather than "This is a thing we're thinking about doing." Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is an idea we have. Yeah. Come and talk to us. Yeah, and I think this was a good. I, so ultimately, that, that all got resolved. They did not move forward with the .NET Foundation maturity ladder, which I think was a, a good thing, um, mm-hmm. the way it was proposed. It was a good learning lesson for, I think, both the foundation and for Microsoft, though, uh, which is that ultimately there needs to be a high de- – so we, you, we're getting back to this idea of the two constituencies. There's the end users, and then there's also the producers of all this third-party open source. Frankly, you need both. Uh, people who are building .NET applications – I got some bad news. Microsoft's not going to be able to make everything you need. They're going to make right. the twenty percent of tools, eighty percent of developers use. Yep. Uh, so they're going to they're going to make that. They're going to make the lowest common denominator horizontal type components. You need a custom library for doing I don't know some type of special media encoding. It's probably going to be you know some developer working out of their basement somewhere around the world. You're going to have to depend on in order to do that and. We want to make an ecosystem that makes it easy for those developers to find a way to get their own work supported and to, you know, get some, get credit and maybe potentially build a business off of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's kind of the heart of the sustainability conversation, which I'm going to table for a second. The .NET Foundation's role, I think, should basically be kind of helping projects get a couple of basic ABCs taken care of. If you need an authentic code signing certificate for signing your packages, the foundation can provide that. Right. If you need a CLA for working with the contributors, the foundation can provide the infrastructure for doing that. If a maintainer gets hit by a bus, the .NET Foundation has someone inside the GitHub organization who can go ahead and find, you know, basically appoint a new lead maintainer, you know, right. Continue, a business continuity stuff like that. I think that role is pretty well understood now in terms of what it does. But in terms of what our ecosystem should look like, what's the vision for .NET as a community? I think what Microsoft, both my, from what I've heard, talking to some pretty high-level people and Microsoft's, let's say, open source arm and some high-level people at the foundation, I think the approach they're going to adopt going forward is to do a lot more of that type of work out in the open. I think mm-hmm. rather than cooking up stuff in a conference room in Redmond and then just publishing a a very official looking blog about it. I think throwing things together as proposals on GitHub and trying to talk through, all right, we want to make it possible for Microsoft to take these dependencies on third-party open source. Here's some of the stuff we need in order for us to feel comfortable doing that. That's that's accomplishes the same goal, but it's a very different way of approaching the conversation Mm -hmm. and actually gives me a chance and maybe other project leads an opportunity to hear what their needs are kind of spelled out explicitly, but also to weigh in with, well, it's, it's great that you guys, you know, are interested in doing this, but here's why this proposal won't work for us. You know, if you want us to stick with these handful of very, you know, wide open, commercially friendly open source licenses, it kind of prevents us from, from pursuing these types of business models over here. Um, so I think that the role of the, of the .NET Foundation is still at, at the moment somewhat undefined. I have high hopes for the current .NET Foundation board, though, because there's a lot of people there who are not, let's say, 100% you know, tied to Microsoft, who I think are interested in leading it in a more, um, 
a direction that's a lot friendlier towards third-party publishers than it was before. Yep. Yeah. I, I think there, the possibilities are there. I think they're still struggling. Making Growing out a foundation is a very different problem from operating a, a built-up one. Yes. And, uh, and it, it, it almost takes a temporary set of skills to get that initial growth done uh, versus the folks that will operate it long-term. And yeah, and we're in that transition period right now. But it does, when I look at the current sets of pains we're dealing with right now, it's like, there's clearly a role. The, the, these things can be addressed better uh, as a collective. I agree. Um, I also think that, you know, I tend to look at the issues with, let's say, the .NET open source ecosystem as they're not single actor problems. They're usually mm-hmm. network effect problems. Yeah. Um, in this case, so the .NET Foundation's role is that there's no uh, foundations are inherently decentralized in terms of the way they they have to operate. I mean, you might have some central management who agrees on how budgets going to get spent and which programs they can fund, but ultimately it's up to the uh, projects who are participating and the individual members who have given money to join the foundation on what they want to use the foundation's collective power to kind of do. I think a great place for them to start is laying out a sort of pathway for projects on how to A, become a member of the foundation if you want, but B, once you're already a member of the foundation, here's some practices and patterns you should engage in that will help you attract more contributors, that will help you attract more users, and Mm -hmm. might even help you build up a business out of it. I think an approach that looks kind of a little bit more novel like that where it's kind of built around incubating the projects a little bit more actively. And by the way, a lot of this work the foundation itself has to do isn't necessarily, you know, running check-in meetings at every project. I wouldn't even show up for those. If they did it for the <laughs> Akadonet project. But right. more like laying out kind of a set of resources for projects to go and follow and trying to use, let's say, their marketing bullhorn every now and then to draw attention to some of the good work that's been done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than using their bullhorn to draw attention to, let's say, uh, Twitter drama and stuff like that, which tends to happen uh, way too often. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, as entertaining as it is, uh, whenever, I have a, whenever I have a Saturday where I have nothing to do, ca- occasionally, uh, occasionally the .NET Foundation won't disappoint from that point of view. <laughs> um, but I, I would think we would all really prefer it if um, the foundation kind of spelled out its boundaries a little bit more clearly. And, that's, and to your point, I think that's part of a function of the the fact that it's not totally established yet. And the way an open source foundation is going to work in an ecosystem that has a single player in it who has so much influence in in, in Microsoft in this case, uh, it's just a bit of a different animal than what any of the other software ecosystems have to deal with. You know, if you take a look in the Java ecosystem, for instance, one of the things I think makes it so creative and diverse is that even though Oracle is responsible for the development of the JVM and also I think OpenJDK, I think largely comes from them too, uh, which was kind of like their mono project back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, even though they have a big central role in the, in the tool chain and all that, the biggest IDE, Eclipse, is an open source project uh, that has contributors from companies like IBM and Red Hat who work pretty aggressively on it. Uh, you have a lot of big enterprise software companies uh, that are heavily invested in the in the JVM ecosystem. Lots of popular languages all built on top of the JVM, but aren't actively maintained by Oracle. And then you also have a lot of, let's say, you don't have any first-party web frameworks or dependency injection frameworks or any of that type of stuff. That's all kind of emanating from you know, Santa Clara or wherever Oracle's headquartered. Uh, right. It all kind of comes from a lot of different angles in the ecosystem. So that lack of sort of, let's say, having um, We'll call it a software ecclesiarchy in the same way that um, in the same in the same way that Microsoft kind of has one for .NET. Uh, I think results in a lot more innovation there, but also as a result of that, it results in a lot more, let's say, non-standard ways of of doing things, which can be bad. If you're Bank of America and you want to know what's the most secure way for me to build a web app that uses Active Directory Federation, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's trade offs there. I think we need to find our own path for how our open source ecosystem is going to play nicely with Microsoft and ultimately help cultivate other big companies in the space. 
One company I haven't mentioned at all that is a gigantic mm-hmm. player in the .NET space, but is very quiet as far as I can tell, and most of its open source ecosystem is Unity 3D. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I, I'm kind of wa- left scratching my head sometimes wondering why that is. Um, I assume it's because most of their business probably comes from uh, their asset store and that whole marketplace they have, and not as much from the actual, let's say, developer tools sides of thing uh, side of things. But I'm just kind of making assumptions there. I mean, I know nothing, so because if I did know something, I wouldn't say anything. <laughs> but I would bet they're staying very quiet because they are uh, negotiating acquisition with Microsoft. Yeah, uh, that- I bet I, that's just been hanging there for forever. And I don't know if it's close or it's far, because if I did know, I wouldn't say. Mm. Uh, but if you if if you're dancing with a, 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 an elephant, don't poke at it. Yep, I agree with that's- that, too. Seems like a, a good place to leave it. Aaron, thank you very much. We ran a little bit over today, but it was worth uh, finishing those thoughts. So thank you very much. Thanks yeah, for your time, gentlemen. Stuff. Yeah, good to talk to you, Aaron. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you, too. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a